episode of Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony Caldellis, your host. Is anybody out there? Well, if you're still listening, I've thought of a couple of episodes that speak to our moment. This one today is on how the Byzantines coped with pandemics. Um, and it was an opportunity, now that science fiction has won, to to engage in some bit of counterfactual thinking, questions such as would they have even noticed uh, a coronavirus such as the one we're experiencing moving through their society? And what might they have expected their government to do for them? And questions like that. I have two guests today. Uh, since um, the conversation is going to be a bit longer than usual, I'm going to keep my introductory remarks brief. My two guests are ideal for these kinds of questions. Um, they are my colleague here at Ohio State, Tina Sessa, who has also appeared uh, in episode four of this podcast. You can go back and um, listen to a conversation with her there. Uh, but also Kyle Harper, a professor and provost at the University of Oklahoma, uh, who has written a, an extraordinary uh, book called The Fate of Rome, Climate, Disease, and the End of an Empire, which deals with precisely many of the topics that we'll be discussing today. The next episode that I'll post in a couple of weeks will be on questions of social isolation, social distancing in Byzantium. These conversations have all been very illuminating in terms of how we can use Byzantium and pre-modern societies generally and as uh, uh, good to think with for our situation and vice versa. Uh, so here's my conversation with Tina and Kyle. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, welcome back, Tina. This is your second appearance. And welcome, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, what, this is April 2nd. Uh, presumably, we're all trying to work from home, and there's some things we can do from home, and there's some things that we can't. We don't have access to our libraries, for one thing, at least university libraries. Are you doing anything intellectually interesting or different during these days, out of necessity, or long postponed projects that I I have uh, more than the the usual amount of writer's guilt because I'm working on a book on infectious disease and okay. uh, I really really wish it were done and that I'd started it uh, about five years before I did um, but it's it's moving at a pretty slow pace as I'm trying to figure out how to teach on Zoom and um, take care of administrative responsibilities. Yeah, and um, yeah, no, I mean I'm of partially homeschooling my children as many of us are um, also trying to wrap up two courses online fortunately both of which have moved on to research phases so I don't have to do big lectures on zoom um, and then just work on this larger project that I've been working on for a very long time um, with no clear end in sight but someday on war and disaster and ecclesiastical responses to this in late antiquity. So that's that I'm trying to, as little as I can, keep my head in the game, which is, I know, what we're all trying to do right now. Right. I, I thought in these times it would be useful to have some discussions with people about different aspects of what we're experiencing and how it resonates with the research that we do uh, on the Roman Empire, late antiquity, and Byzantium. So one question that I, that's occurred to me over the past few weeks it's a speculative question, but 
it's just kind of interesting for calibrating how we think about the differences in, in, in societies in modern and pre-modern. Would those societies have even registered that a virus such as the one that we're coping with had been, you know, was unleashed on, uh, among them? Like, would they have known that something was going on at all? And I say this because, like, just hypothetical scenario. So let's assume that this causes a roughly 1% um, mortality among those infected. Let's say about half the people were infected in the first run. Would that death rate have registered? And how would it even have registered? Given that the symptoms are not um, anything out of the ordinary, so people died of those kinds of things all the time. They had a very undeveloped vocabulary for describing symptoms and classifying diseases. Uh, they had also far fewer older people. Um, so anyway, so yeah, just a question for you. Uh, would this have even registered? Uh, Kyle, why don't we start with you? Sure. I mean, it's a, obviously a hard question, but I think it's a fun one and um, gets at some, some interesting questions and ways to think about these sorts of disease events and the prism of, through the prism of the past. And um, I think first I was going to make the observation that you did, and I think it's very important to underscore that COVID-19 is a little odd in, in its um, age discriminatory impact. And the biology of that is one of the, the real mysteries of it that'll eventually get unraveled. But um, right now there's not a, a really great or consensus hypothesis about why it uh, impacts the, the elderly and otherwise um, compromised individuals so dramatically more than it does children, which is just an almost unbelievably um, light impact from mortality um, on children. So, um, as you say, since the, the age pyramid in antiquity was so bottom heavy, um, this would have had a probably very light impact. But um, leaving that, that question aside, um, I think there's probably two, two things I want to say about it. One is, um, I think to, to ask that, you would have to answer the question of what would the COVID pandemic look like without large public health interventions. Um, and there are people who say we shouldn't be responding as aggressively um, uh, to the to the pandemic, the damage we're doing to the economy is worse than the, the damage to people's health if we just let it run its course. I strongly disagree with that, but um, um, but it is an opinion out there. The, but and one of the reasons I disagree with it is that without strong public health interventions, um, this disease spreads really dramatically, and it's already just crossed a million people, and that's only of confirmed cases. There's probably five to ten times that many. Um, already globally. And without um, strong public health interventions, this contagion in our world, which is much more interconnected, um, would have infected, you know, it's, it's hard to say, I haven't seen a good model of what it would look like, but, um, but indulge me, it would, it would infect 100 million people or more, right? If, if we weren't um, stepping in to stop it, um, every person that's infected in an environment without um, social distancing and strong restrictions on movement is infecting between two and three other people. So that's what epidemiologists call the R naught, um, the number of infective cases that each um, infectious person causes. And so it's really contagious. Um, so without the public health that we have, um, a lot of people would have got sick. And so from that perspective, you think maybe maybe people would notice. Um, but as you say, the case fatality rates um, are quote unquote only one percent, and that's of course an estimate that will. Um, be very much refined with more mm -hmm. data, but 
you know, it's clearly, it's not smallpox. It's not bubonic plague. Um, it seems to be worse than influenza, which is pretty, pretty nasty disease, even seasonal flu. Um, so it's, it's a very serious pathogen, but not on a par with some of the real, you know, most were the worst killers of history. Um, and, and, you know, in an ordinary year in the Roman or Byzantine empire, um, probably uh, about 3% of people died, um, three to three and a half percent. So just given what we know about the kind of baseline mortality, um, 30, 35 out of a thousand people would have died every year. Uh, and most of those would have been infants. So would they notice a, a surplus mortality of say 1% or if it were unchecked and it spread 2%? Maybe. I mean, it would have been considered maybe a bad year, but it wouldn't have probably uh, mapped onto their, their kind of imagination as a, as a really catastrophic mortality event. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways the operative word in your question, Anthony, is notice. What do you mean by notice, right? I mean, would you have, would a small community have taken stock that one more person perhaps died that year? perhaps somebody not in a, in a predictable age group, so not an infant, right, to build on Kyle's observation, but somebody who is sort of at the prime, you know, in their early 20s or something like that. Um, I mean, I think we notice it the way we do because we have demographic information, because we understand numbers in a profoundly different way than people who lived in late antiquity understood numbers. And I don't want to suggest that they couldn't add or multiply or things like that, because that's not what I mean. What I mean is that they didn't have demography as a science. They didn't think about sort of statistical information as being sort of not only potentially predicative of something, but as actually being knowledge in and of itself. Um, and so I think a lot of our noticing coronavirus has simply to do with our understanding of what 1% of 2 million means, right? Um, and, and being able to kind of think about the world in terms of percentages and statistics um, and risk in, in a way that's, that's quantified. And I just don't think people in late antiquity thought about risk in a quantifiable kind of way. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that the quantification is crucial here because uh, I think even our responses to um, diseases, say, such as Ebola or even the plague, right, that produce a kind of visual impact that, that you see this and you're terrified. Uh, and we're terrified of that even regardless, perhaps, of the data. But this is a particular kind of disease that has had its effect on our society because we're extrapolating from data. Mm -hmm. In itself, it's not, you know, like, oh, the symptoms sound like the flu. And there are people who, in ignorance, perhaps thought that they could right. brush it off that way. Right. But right. it's it's really a data-driven response. Um, I, I, that's what I find so interesting about it. And, yeah. and, and into which institutions like hospitals tie in, right? Because the, the, the death rate is also proportionate to the capacity of hospitals. Right, 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 right. So, so in a way, if if there were no hospitals in the modern sense, which there were not in late antiquity, I mean, hospitals. Just to be clear for listeners, were primarily um, places for poor people to go to receive food and shelter, 
possibly healthcare if that arose, but that was not really what the function that hospitals served in late antiquity um, to the extent that they existed at all. Um, yeah, would you know? Um, and I think that's, that's an, I mean, to sort of go back to, to kind of return to sort of Kyle's like, well, possibly. I mean, I think we also have to keep in mind that our sources, as you said, Anthony, typically when they give us I mean, outside of medical writers, when our when our historians and our chroniclers tend to give us details about a disease, it's because the disease is unusual. It has symptoms that aren't what one typically expects. Um, you know, we don't read about even the malarial. Uh, you know, right, malaria right. hit malaria, yeah, yeah. all over the place in the Mediterranean, um, and we know this. And and occasionally they talk about it, but they don't talk about it all the time, they'll simply refer to a pestilence, an epidemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We often just simply don't know what was behind that. That could have been some kind of influenza or it could have been something much more, uh, much different like bubonic plague. Um, and so we, you know, and I think it's a worthy question to ask why our sources are, I don't know, uninterested, as it were, in detailing symptoms in some cases and not others. I mean, I think there are probably rhetorical answers to that, historical ones as well, with, with respect to just experiencing disease. Um, but, but yeah. Yeah, sometimes in Chronicles, you'll, you'll find just a brief reference that, oh, in this town, there was a, a fanaticon. A, a oh, yeah, always. I mean, and that's yeah. that. Like, you don't know what else was behind yeah, it. No, no, I mean, it's listed, I mean, as one of often a kind of whole string of disasters that um, war, pestilence, hail. hail, earthquakes, you know, so, so on and yeah, so yeah, forth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and pestilence is always on that list. It just typically isn't qualified to the extent that we can identify exactly which disease or even start to do that. Um, so the answer is like, we don't, you know, would they have noticed coronavirus? I mean, probably not, but, but possibly if it, if it, if it were impacting, um, you know, a demographic that they didn't expect to be perhaps. Um, yeah. So let's talk about some, um, outbreaks of disease that they did re react to and about which we can say something about the social, um, social effect, um, and social, um, re responses. And, uh, the one that we have the most information about is the Justinianic plague. Uh, this is, of course, a very different disease. It's transmitted in very different ways, um, and that I think is crucial. Um, but um, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, how did the society respond to a perceptible <laughs> um, outbreak of mass death that 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 was visually very impactful? Um, and uh, um, and what what could they do? Uh, Kyle, you want to start? Um, sure, and um, I'll I'll say um, as a as a reflection, um, this the the coronavirus pandemic um, is is interesting as a historian who's worked a lot on infectious disease um, and the the experience of classical societies with epidemic mortality. Um, I'm being being asked um, questions like that a lot, um, which is which is great. People are interested in the past. Um, the reasons for that are obviously tragic, um, but but it also is very challenging um, um, because um, it's you know response to epidemic mortality is not uh, a very kind of uniform category of thing that exists. Um, 
their their pandemic mortalities come in so many different shapes and sizes and forms and can be caused by very different pathogenic organisms and can strike societies in very different ways. Um, and so I find myself trying to um, respond responsibly to these, these kind of questions and the innate human curiosity about what did humans who came before us um, think of this? Um, and uh, and it's, at the same time, I think it's hard to say much more than um, this is a, a kind of normal but important part of the experience of our species that um, unpredictable and sometimes quite severe uh, biological shocks are uh, a pattern of human history, and um, they clearly can provide systemic shock to societies, and particularly when there's conjuncture, when that aligns with constitutional crises or monetary crises, um, they can spur real change, profound transformations. Um, at other times, societies are quite resilient. Um, and can absorb these sorts of shocks and keep moving on. Um, and maybe what we can say is that when these kinds of mortality events um, arrive and shock a society, it does produce fear and trauma, and it, it pressurizes the atmosphere in ways that, that are unpredictable, but nonetheless do matter. And... Um, and some ways bring out the whole spectrum of, of human nature um, from incredible grace and charity to um, extraordinary hatred and stigmatization. Um, and um, I think we're, we're seeing that in the world around us today. Um, yeah, no. And, and I mean, if I could bring up maybe one example of something that bothered people enormously when the, the Justinianic plague uh, was at its height in the 540s. And what I think bothers people today, and let me start with people bothering people today. So my, um, my husband is English and his parents, he's an only child and his parents live in the UK and they are, you know, self-isolating. They both have uh, pre-existing health concerns. And do you know what their number one fear is? who's going to go to their funeral? If they die, who will take care of their bodies? Who will be there to see them off um, in death? And this concern over, which, you know, wouldn't be mine, but that is what they're both preoccupied with. Um, that is very much the concern that both Procopius and John of Ephesus underline. In fact, what they talk most about is they both give you a little bit on the disease and they give you, you know, yeah. to a certain extent, the immediate economic impact and all of that. But you know what they're both really obsessed with? Bodies. What do we do with all of these dead bodies? Um, and, and very much preoccupied with the fact that they cannot be given the traditional ritual send-off, whatever that might be. I mean, we're not even told what it should be. All we're told is that it's not happening. Um, and in fact, the the most fascinating kind of detail, I think, to that effect in, in both texts, which they share, which is super interesting, um, which kind of gets at a question maybe we want to talk about later, which is what is the role of institutions then and now? Um, is that apparently Justinian in Constantinople actually appointed somebody 
to oversee the handling of the bodies and 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 their deposition, which to my knowledge is is pretty I don't think I've ever seen that before. Um, and we can get into to, to the extent to which government had any role in alleviating crises in antiquity for sure. Um, but I think that's something that they both were that both of our ancient sources really underline as being a problematic component of this. It's what do you do with these bodies? How do you take care of the dead in a way that is, is deserving of them? And that is clearly something that is bothering us today. I mean, every time you turn the news on, they have a picture of those giant refrigerated trucks that are being used potentially to hold uh, bodies from the virus. And I think that's something that really does connect us back to the ancient world in terms of those emotional ties for sure that that Kyle was alluding to and that's I mean that's such a um, you know such a culturally rich um, preoccupation there's so many levels of that and it's not um, the, the first time of course that we see or hear that in the context of an epidemic um, in sixth century Constantinople um, it's a it's a kind of distinguished tradition I'm not saying it's only a, a literary trope by any means but but it is that as well um, and there's a there's a aspect of ancient mentality, of course, that um, one of the the main quasi scientific theories they have to explain pestilence is that um, it's miasma, it's corruption of the air, and oftentimes the source of the pollution is to con considered to be dead bodies. So it's it's a kind of almost public health concern as well that's driving that, as well as obviously the. Um, the psychological trauma and, and just human need to um, respect the, the death of our loved ones with rituals. Um, but, but I want to I um, riff off of one element of that um, that goes back to Anthony's first question and then actually ask a question um, if either of you have an answer to that. Um, Anthony asked, did, um, would people have noticed? And um, I think maybe one way that people might have noticed um, is is when uh, epidemic events is when um, any of the kind of systems that underlie ordinary life um, get disrupted and clearly ancient cities do have systems um, to to take care of the the burial of the dead at least the the larger cities do um, and um, and so if that gets disrupted um, if it kind of exceeds its emergency capacity. Um, that it overflows and people kind of notice that that it's maybe something out of the ordinary. It's not just a normal year. Um, and one of the things that um, that I've never been able to trace to its source in the ancient histories and um, the, the kind of treatment of plague in, in ancient literature is this obsession with a daily body count. Um, and it's there in the Justinian plague. It's there in um, um, the Antonine plague um, that and they're in actually earlier plagues and that happened in Rome as well. Um, they, they sort of mark it by saying, um, for instance, 5,000 people a day died. Um, and I've not never seen a good, um, kind of exegesis of that, but it must be meaningful. It's, it's not how we count. Um, but I've wondered, is that they kind of have a, a system for the disposal of the dead that can handle X bodies a day. And, um, there is somebody counting that, and um, when that system starts to overflow, it kind of registers. But I've always found that an odd way, and I've never quite 
cracked that that nut, um, kind of thinking in their cultural terms. Why why do they see it that way? Why why do they think of it in terms of the number of bodies a day? Um. So part of the answer may well be in the way that they think about death in in a sense uh, i'm thinking so specifically of erosius and erosius just for the listeners was a early fifth century christian author who wrote a a text called the history seven books of history against the pagans but really it's like a history of disaster um and one of the things that Erosius does, Kyle, that you probably have noticed, is he's obsessed with body counts too. Although for him, the body counts aren't dying from plague, they're from dying from war. And so I would, I would wonder whether the connection we need to look for isn't that something particular is going on with the accounts of people dying from plague, but that there is a way in which number functions qualitatively, probably more than quantitatively, in, in, in understanding and processing death on a larger scale, right? Not just your dad dies, your sister dies, your, your, your infant dies, but how do you process death on a large level? Um, and they don't have the kind of demographic knowledge and, and skills and techniques that we developed in the 19th century. But there is a sense that that you do look for number as a way to mark that, um, which is not a, but so I would just say that, that part of this is it's not just specific to disease, that it's something you also see in accounts of, of war as well. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, I'll think about that connection. I just, but it's the dead per day that I, I'm just not well, but the dead per battle, right? I mean, it's it's. I mean, I would see those two things as closely connected. No. Um, dead per event, right? <laughs> so can I? I'll speculate yeah, yeah, yeah. wildly. <laughs> um, so f first of all, the emphasis on 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 funerals is is fascinating. I had never thought about it quite so specifically as when you mentioned it. But in fact, I, I remember when when Italy started to be hit hard. Uh, last month, that the first real warnings came from priests who had noticed a serious uptick in funerals. Yes. And this was before there was a national discourse about, oh, you know, th this is now happening. And a, a lot of priests in a lot of villages were like, what is going on? Because they couldn't process the volume, to put it in you know, crude terms. Um, and I'm wondering if, if, if there's a similar, um, so if, if the sort of funeral, that's uh, not industry, I guess, in Constantinople, but I mean, you know, population of half a million, there must've been something comparable, um, that, that, that might've been one of the early warning signs would have come from that sector. Um, but the, the, the dead per day, this is very interesting. Um, so let's think about it from another angle that one of the institutions in Constantinople that was somewhat quantifiable um, in the way it worked was the Anona. That is the distribution of bread to the citizens of Constantinople. And there was a set number of these chips, like a token. And if you had the token, you were entitled to, you know, whatever ration. Um, and 
and the whole you know egyptian grain fleet the whole purpose of it was to bring the grain and it went into the state warehouses and it and from there the grain went to the state bakeries and they made the bread and they distributed the bread every day now let's suppose that one day you suddenly have 5000 portions left over and then the next day you have 10000 portions left over right like the, now obviously not everybody in constantinople had these um but the plague would have hit indiscriminately of whether you had a token or not so let's assume that the the state bakeries are ending up with more bread at the end of the day right and this gets this would have gotten to the emperor very quickly it's like hey we have this surplus and the priests are saying, hey, well, I mean, they would have noticed the plague deaths because they're visibly, you know, visually, but, but that it was having a, a measurable demographic impact. Does that, I mean, that's yeah. maybe a wild Well, guess. I mean, there's a bigger question here that, that we're kind of dancing around, which is what institution is typically, quote unquote, in charge of caring for the dead and burials. And I think that's actually a more complex question than, I mean, I think we're, we're all, I don't know where you're, it sounds like Anthony, you're assuming the church did this. Um, and I'm, I would say maybe yes, maybe no, that, that up until the fifth century, it's pretty clear that death was still a, an event handled by families. Private. Um, yeah. And unless you were a cleric, and then there is some evidence of the church handling clerical burials. And there certainly is evidence of the interaction with clerics in the burial process, but it's not like the church is in control right, of right, right, right. who gets buried where and what entirely. Um, and this shifts over time. In the sixth century is harder to say. And honestly, I can't think of a really, most of the work has been done on this and maybe Kyle knows more kind of ends in the fifth century <laughs> it doesn't take it into the sixth and seventh and once we start having churchyards and churchyard cemeteries it's actually much clearer that the church's control um but there is this kind of gray area so i'm just not sure i mean priests might have noticed but i'm not sure and yes there is a ritual of something like last rites and and certainly that may well have been the the increased demand on that particular ritual need may well have have been of notice to people um but i'm not sure we really know who was other other than just individual families who was kind of in charge of procuring your burial space uh dressing the body bringing the body to the funeral uh, to the grave and so forth yeah, I mean, at a certain point, Justinian appointed an official to collect some teams to gather up the, the bodies. According and, to just, yeah, Procopius. And they were probably counting. I mean, they were probably being paid by the body. Or... Yes, yes. In fact, J John of Ephesus says this. Oh. He specifically says that people were getting rich because the more body, they end up having to rely on everyday people and that people end up making money. This is part of a, a larger theme, which is another thing we can talk about is, you know, how do people respond? And uh, Kyle talked about it brings out the best and the worst. And I would say that most the, most of our ancient sources actually only talk about the worst. <laughs> I'm always like, kind of struck how there are no heroes in Procopius or John of Ephesus's version mm -hmm. of the plague. There's, well, I mean, there, are the, there are the doctors. Um, Procopius they're not, they're about, not the heroes in either of them. There are no doctors. The doctors play no role in either of those accounts. No, no, no. Procopius talks about the doctors. Um, mm, and a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I think more than that. Now, he says they couldn't actually do anything to help. Yeah. But they were there. Um, and he says that they were they were there and they were attending on the ill. Um, and that yeah. and, and this is a, a crucial medical fact that they were not infected any more than other people who weren't. In other words, contact with someone who was ill did not result in you being infected. Uh, but he does he does talk about them doing their job in those circumstances that were yeah I, yes but I guess I'm thinking about and this is certainly we should do this the way we are heroizing our healthcare workers right now um, you know people are clapping they'll, they'll have a change in in shift and people are getting coming out of their homes and clapping for them which yeah. is fantastic and wonderful and we should be celebrating these people who are literally risking their lives um, but that's not Procrepius doesn't celebrate anybody. Um, he talks about the people who for a little while step up their game and seem to behave really well. And then once it's clear that this is kind of over, they all return to their evil ways. Um, both John of Ephesus and Procopius talk extensively about people who try to um, seek opportunities by stealing property of people who were dead. Um, and in John of Ephesus's case, every single one of them is struck dead the second it happens. Immediately, they, yes. Immediately, they, they, they sort of fill up their, their arms with gold, and the minute they cross the threshold, they're struck dead uh, by God. So, um, so I don't know, I mean, it seems to me, <laughs> I don't think there are heroes in either one of those uh, stories. Uh, all right, look, I'm, I'm trying here. I'm trying to find the book. <laughs> um, one thing that I, have not found in any of these sources with with one possible exception is sort of demonizing minority groups in other words we don't see the society start saying oh it's the her it's heretics or it's jews or it's pagans and turn on them and say they're doing it uh, which is remarkable for that society uh, you know they kept their cool about that more than we seem to be doing in some cases the exception is so this is one law in which justinian blames um plague and earthquakes on homosexual activity uh, which you can also find today in a number of the world's parliaments and political <laughs> offices as these views are still expressed um but other than that i don't see any sort of widespread scapegoating or uh no, so John of Ephesus at one point says that the people of Constantinople had gotten it into their head that the monks were bringing this thing, carrying it around. Yes, and so and, they were avoiding. And they were avoiding, yeah, social distancing from monks. Yes, because they thought they were. This was the course. I think this is the section right after he talks about people thinking that if they throw pottery out their window, they can drive the disease out too. So it's sort of like his section on the equivalent of old wives tales and what doesn't really and he's kind of you know saying look this yeah. is this is this is ridiculous this does not work don't throw stuff out your window and don't avoid the monks and clerics because it's not you know they're not bringing disease into the city um no it's interesting though i mean i don't know whether kyle can think of anything i mean the, the one thing i think of actually interestingly isn't so much associating disease with and and scapegoating a group but when the Visigoths sacked Rome in 410, lots of people blamed the Christians for this. Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> and in fact, we told Erosius, you this would happen. Yes, yes. And in fact, Erosius writes this whole big 
treatise about bad mm. things that happened to the world, precisely to prove that bad things have been happening in the world long before the Visigoths sacked Rome in 410. And so don't blame the Christians. Um, so, but that's the first, so interestingly, that's the only thing I can think of. And you're right. I mean, later in the Middle Ages, you would start scapegoating Jews in particular for this kind of thing. Um, but Kyle, have you seen anything in your research on infectious disease? No, I mean, I, I think uh, a couple of quick thoughts. One, that um, in the, the earlier plagues of the 160s and 250s, um, both of those seem to coincide at least with spasms of persecution against the Christians, um, right. whether or not there's a, a direct yeah, link yeah. is another question, but- um, Yeah, that's true, yeah. Um, but it's, it's worth observing. Um, and then you, Anthony, you thought of exactly the, the example that I had in mind um, as a law of Justinian. It's a later law, right? It's like from the yeah. 550s, um, I can't remember the exact year, but, um, and so it may have even followed um, the second uh, outbreak of the, the um, plague. Uh, and um, it, it's otherwise hard to find really strong scapegoating in the, the early sources. But um, maybe you can imagine the, the early seventh century when of course the plague is still um, rampant in the, the Roman world and Near East. Um, some of the intensification of anti-Semitic um, thought, but I haven't noticed a particularly strong scapegoating um, of the the Jews for the the plague in those seventh century sources. But um, it'd be worth looking closer and thinking about that because there's certainly a a kind of intensification of anti-Semitism in the early seventh century. Yeah, and the connection would always have to be. Um, indirect. In other words, I don't think they would have thought, ah, these are the carriers of the disease, or there's some sort of cause, but rather, you know, God is punishing us for tolerating that. So God becomes this clearinghouse for anything that you want to, you know, that you think is wrong. Right. Um, so it's, it's sort of indirect in that way. Uh, yeah. I was going to say that the, the behavior, the, what gets blamed, what gets connected causally is, is sinful behavior, right? Within the community. It's yeah. not coming... It's not this thing that's coming. It's not this sort of exogenous thing that's coming into the community. It's some. It's, it's us in the community who are not behaving the way God wants us to. Therefore, God is is punishing us, which is interesting because it's a really different way of thinking about the you know the entrance of a disease that is different into your community um, and and why it's happening. And somewhat in contrast with the the legislation of Justinian that we were talking about, the the sin that. Um, seems to most preoccupy, particularly John of Ephesus, is actually greed. Um, um, it's not yes. so yeah. much sexual depravity as it is no. um, greed. And yes, uh, hence all his stories fun. about the people going in and stealing the Black screen TV of the dead TV. people. Yeah, no, exactly. Yes, no, you're right. He theft, I think, is the is the sin that he yeah, yeah. theft and, and and greed. Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask another question. So what could the government do for you um, in an ancient or medieval pandemic? Tina, you want to go first? Um, I mean, not much, right? I, I would say that what the government did for you to lessen your likelihood of getting sick is probably things, and, and, and not necessarily drawing connections between these things, but the fact that there was fresh water through aqueducts available to people probably kept down, you know, like 
cholera and things. I mean, the rates of that because you had access to fresh water. Again, there was no connection made between those things. Um, and I'll say just as a kind of footnote to that, bathing culture would have been absolutely rampant with disease because the baths would not, you know, the water was not changed regularly. Um, and in fact, sick people were very often directed to go bathe as a means to um, heal. So, um, I mean, generally speaking, the quote unquote government, and again, part of this depends on what you mean by government, um, but the government didn't have a particular you know, institution within it that was set aside to deal with public health, right? Um, however, there was a long history of uh, ad hoc interventions, and I'm thinking particularly uh, in cases of food shortages, where you do see the government acting mm -hmm. individuals, maybe the emperor, or more likely, if you're not in Rome or Constantinople, uh, a kind of elite official, some, a kind of local official slash elite, um, who saw it as part of his you know, job, essentially, his obligation to provide for uh, the community if there was, for example, a food shortage, just like he would have thought it was his obligation to provide games or uh, you know, other infrastructural uh, uh, maintenance. Um, but I don't think that people would have expected their government to do much, which is why I'm really struck by the, the detail in, during the Shinianic plague of the appointment of this, I think his name is Theodorus, mm -hmm. to oversee the collection of the bodies and their disposal. I think that's, to me, really um, novel. Um, but Kyle, you may know more than me on this. No, I think I think that's um, the right answer. That um, what we think of as um, public health didn't exist in the classical world. Um, certainly not under that name or category. But there may have been rudimentary elements of public health um, and what we think of as kind of sanitation and hygiene as part of the the infrastructure of urban life um, in the classical and mm -hmm. classical Mediterranean um, and those institutions. Um, are, are the kinds of institutions in the, that in the Middle Ages, I think, are in some ways the kind of seeds of, of public health. Um, but um, uh, those wouldn't have had a very strong effect in, um, in stopping epidemic mortality from escalating. And um, the, maybe the first kind of public interventions that could do that are, are what we think of as quarantine, um, which evolves really from the, the 15th century, um, you maybe say elements of it in the late 14th century in the context of the Black Death. So it's, it's really a very late medieval or early modern invention. And um, I don't find many traces of, of anything um, resembling public health or quarantine in times of, of these ancient plagues. If anything, the response tends to be um, religious and uh, efforts to propitiate the gods or God. Yeah, or or go to the baths, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or or the prescription of certain types of remedies that may well. I mean, I think it's it might be worth just noting the obvious, um, which is that there the people didn't have microscopes, people didn't have the knowledge of pathogens. Um, people thought your health was largely a factor of your balance of humors. Um, this was a period, right, when humoral theory was the, the kind of mainframe 
of scientific thinking about health. Um, on the, uh, with that, people also thought that your body could be influenced by external um, factors, such as bad air that, that Kyle mentioned, such as the alignment of the stars, but also by supernatural um, beings like demons, right? Demons could make you sick too. Um, so the whole purpose of you know, health, uh, sickness by definition was when your humors were out of whack and your humors, could, again, could become out of whack for any number of reasons. Um, hum, hum, your humors were dynamic, they were constantly changing. Um, and healing was a process of getting those, getting your humors back in whatever the right balance needed to be. And so that means when you try to heal people, you're, Part, a lot of times it's, it's giving them what we would call kind of herbal remedies, foods, um, and, and forms of exercise. And, and, and there was, there was a, I say, you know, we might want to call it a healthcare system as long as we understand that it was made up of, of physicians who were by and large, you know, not trained beyond a kind of, um, a kind of, um, a, a basic level of, of probably being, you know, going in and working with somebody else who was a physician and learning through uh, accompanying them around. There was no accreditation. There were no medical schools in the modern sense. Um, and so this was much more fluid and ad hoc. And there were lots of different people around who uh, purported to and were believed to be able to provide various forms of healing. And some of them were physicians and some of them were uh uh, you know, uh, religious uh, experts, people who, spiritual experts, people who had knowledge of a different sort of set of, of variables that could impact your body. And I would say that in, in late antiquity and in antiquity, most people did both. Most people went to their doctor and they went to their healer um, and didn't see a huge sort of problem with, with simultaneously kind of existing in both of those realms. I want to I want to point out um, I agree with everything you said, but um, but I want to add um, a, a kind of set of um, an observation about some some facts that I think the ancients struggled um, to to process. Um, I I think I love the way you put it that the the um, humoral theory was kind of the mainframe for scientific or medical thinking about health. But these people lived in a world surrounded by infectious disease and. They clearly had a kind of non-scientific uh, recognition of contagion. Um, it's almost like they had a set of facts and they just didn't know where to put them. And so people are, I mean, even the, the observation that Anthony, you made about Procopius and the doctors, uh, it assumes that there would be some kind of expectation that doctors would be exposed to illness uh, because they were interacting with the people who were sick. Um, and you see in the, the plague of Cyprian, um, some of the contemporary uh, texts of the third century, there's a big plague in the third century, say that it was transmitted by eyesight, which is a very interesting observation that has mm -hmm. no place in the, the kind of normal humoral theory, um, but seems to reflect some kind of belief that interaction um, was contagious. And then my, my favorite, um, one of these kind of stray facts that didn't fit in any ancient theory, but they still, you know, they lived with infectious disease and they knew at some level that they were often contagious is a, a little lead amulet from London that's probably connected with the response to the Antonine Plague in which 
um, the, the priest of Apollo or the Oracle of Apollo um, instructs people uh, not to kiss each other, which is um, if you're in the middle of what may or may not have been a smallpox pandemic um, in a Mediterranean society where kissing and even kissing on the lips is um, a common form of greeting, um, that's very good advice. Um, <laughs> kind of social distancing, second century style. Um, but it was a you know fact that didn't fit neatly in any kind of humoral theory. But people who had experienced these horrific mortality events um, kind of um, made observations and, and drew um, tentative conclusions that they never were able to, to understand really the mechanisms without germ theory. Yeah, yeah, you know, in fact, Kyle, you probably know this, but um, in veterinary manuals, in late antique veterinary manuals, they talk about culling herds precisely when certain animals get sick. Yeah. And that clearly shows there's an understanding of contagion, right? Yeah. Because um, no, I, I think I think that's right. Although you know, contagion can, on a certain level, fit with yeah. humoral theory, right? Because there there was always this sense. I mean, that's the beauty of humoral theory: why it in, endures until like the 19th century, basically, um, because you can it, it kind of fits with just about anything, and that you know anything can influence your balance, whether and and how that I mean how that. Uh, external factor is sort of absorbed into your body can happen in all different ways. Um, the kissing is really interesting. Um, the eyes thing, though, is fascinating. And, and I, I do believe there were theories of eyesight that postulated that you, like, rays of light came out of your eyes, and that's how you... So that would make sense that it was seen as almost like a, a two-way kind of flow between, um, you know, you're looking at somebody and somebody looking back at you can somehow transmit whatever this is that's, that's, make, that's throwing your body off. Exactly. This, this is the evil eye, isn't it? Vascania. Yeah, yeah. Right, like, it, you know, this, so this is the belief that you can cause harm to someone else through uh, kind of malice that is expressed in the way you, you know, you look at them. And um, in, in, in some societies, if you see someone looking at you in a strange kind of way, you might want to find some, let's just call it supernatural, uh, superstitious way to counter that, whether knocking on wood or something like that. Uh, and in, in Turkey, for example, you, all, you find all of these little amulets with the eye in them. I mean, that's to protect you from that kind of look. Um, exactly. Yeah, no, I, have, oh, it's, I, I haven't found that in uh, sources about this plague, but... No, no, I haven't either. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, and speaking of kissing, uh, there's you know there's a story of uh, Saint Simeon the Holy Fool, and he, before an outbreak of the plague, which he had foreseen miraculously, he 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 went and he kissed a number of children uh, in the town, um, and those children survived, and the ones he didn't uh, kiss died uh, when the plague came. Um, <laughs> just one way to survive a plague, I guess. Um, so okay. Uh, I want to get your thoughts about one more um, sort of mode of analysis, which is seeing events like these as kind of out of the blue, exogenous shocks to the system that, you know, um, we're not prepared for, couldn't imagine, um, versus having some kind of mentality that incorporates precisely those kinds of events as part of what happens in the world. And, you know, this is not something that uh, causes uh, humanity to go into sort of convulsions of shock and 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 amazement at how the world works, but this is just how it works. And 
and and that's part of the imagination that um, societies bring to these kinds of events. And I, to a certain degree, I feel that we either have internalized or like to believe in a world that's structured and regular and predictable, governed by expertise and natural law that we can manipulate and we can foresee and we have models and five-year plans and things like this. And then every once in a while we get these shocks. And I think that perhaps the shock is magnified by the the, the previous sort of presumption that we've got it under control because we live surrounded by experts who are always telling us this is we got we we got this and don't panic and things like that. Which when you hear that, you always almost want to panic, right? <laughs> um, so how how is the perception different in, in in ancient societies or I mean just generally I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a huge question, Anthony. There's there's like five questions in there, um, so I'll I'll take the first couple. Any part of it, yeah. And then I'll hand it off to Tina when I get exhausted. The um, um, so when people say exogenous, they they sometimes mean different things by it, and so I think it's um it's helpful to to try and uh, define what that means a little bit. Um, most so most this is a term that's most commonly used by economists um, who. Uh, create models, and then some of the the variables may be endogenous, some of them may be exogenous. And probably the most important of these models for our purposes is the Malthusian uh, model in which um, pre-industrial economies are controlled by endogenous relationships between um, demography and economics, namely the subsistence wage level and fertility and mortality rates. And so that theory would predict that mortality um, increases when wages go down and um, plagues would therefore be endogenous to the system um, when population overreaches the kind of equilibrium level. Uh, and it's a good theory. There's, there's a lot of evidence for it, um, at least as, as a you know, partial explanation for the um, dynamics of pre-industrial societies um, that um, that this is one way to understand um, the dynamics and the relationship between population and, and economic production. Um, part of the, one of the problems though, um, is that not all the facts fit the model. Um, and uh, a lot of times you do have rapid, dramatic increases in mortality that are not easily explained by um, the wage level. And we know this much more um, um, there's a lot more evidence for the kind of second millennium for the late Middle Ages and early modern period where you have really good continuous wage series and you can um, construct mortality series and you can you can test this in a much more um, meaningful way. Um, and it's just the case that sometimes mortality is endogenous and so plagues happen when people get um, really hungry and they follow famine and then sometimes they just come from nowhere. Um, and they can't be explained within the, the terms of that system. So mm -hmm. that's one um, way in which people use exogenous. Um, and I think that there's a lot to that. I actually think it helps us think about the, the structure of, of pre-modern societies. But, but I also find it partially unsatisfying because um, even if plagues are exogenous to the, the sort of Malthusian system, um, that doesn't mean that they're just, um, random acts of God um, that are otherwise somehow unstructured. And in fact, uh, I think that um, mortality, that, that um, disease, infectious diseases um, are ecologically structured. And 
So they may be outside the, the Malthusian model, but they're still endogenous to the kinds of societies that humans create. And, um, and so if we think a little more capaciously, um, then we shouldn't see these, um, these kinds of events as totally um, coming from without, outside of any sort of system that we can structurally describe. So um, even a disease like the plague, uh, the bubonic plague um, is, is um, kind of connected to the sorts of ecologies that are created, the global trading networks, the um, internal trading networks, the grain supply system, the urban habitats um, that are all necessary for, for a massive plague pandemic to occur. Um, then I think the, uh, there's a second part of your question where you're asking about shocks. Um, and I do think that's a useful way to think about some of these events because um, ancient societies were high mortality societies. People always died of infectious disease. Life expectancies were really low. Um, and, and yet, um, infectious disease mortality was highly variable. Um, it's a very um, unpredictable system. And, um, and you know, I, I was mentioning that baseline mortality may be like 30 per thousand per year. But um, when that spikes up to 200, 300, 400 um, per year, as it may have in the, the worst um, pre-modern epidemics, that's a shock. Um, and that means that it's a, a kind of sudden dramatic change that has reverberations throughout different kinds of systems, whether that's the fiscal system or the um, agrarian productive system or the kind of geopolitical military system. Um, uh, that's how I understand um, the meaning of a, of a shock. And I do think that um, biological change has been a source of these kinds of shocks throughout pre-modern history, but that actually one of the hallmarks of modernization is that human societies develop tools to, to buffer against these, these shocks. And so um, over the last 250 years, um, developed societies have not experienced mortality shocks that resemble um, the kinds of um, events like, say, the Black Death, where it's um, pretty um, well incontestable that um, upwards of half the population dies um, suddenly across huge territories. Um, that's a shock, and those, those haven't happened. And coronavirus is not a shock, um, at least on that kind of black swan, um, multiple orders of magnitude outside the, the norm um, event. Um, coronavirus still is shocking, and maybe we'll loop back around to that. But um, but it's I think it's worth kind of trying to wrap our minds around as historians. Um, this is actually um, comparatively a pretty modest mortality event compared to what um, pre-industrial societies experienced, and yet it's clearly going to have a pretty dramatic effect. Um, yeah, I mean, let me come at the question in a similar way by thinking about words that we use to talk about um, events like what we're going through right now and what people went through in the sixth century. And one word in particular that, that you use the word shock, Anthony and, and Kyle, but one could also in contemporary English substitute crisis. Um, and I think that's another word that just, you know, but as Kyle performed a really helpful sort of, um, sort of explanatory discussion of what, what exogenous means and where we started using the word in which field. I mean, and I won't totally go into this, but crisis is a word that um, 
I mean, it's, it's an, it actually is an ancient word, unlike disaster, which is like completely not an ancient word. Uh, crisis is an ancient word, um, but it, and it, it mostly refers to, it was mostly used in medical literature to refer to this kind of moment, this decisive moment where a person, depending on what you did as a physician, was going to either live or die. Um, and, and so that kind of decision point is sort of where, you know, Kurnel, right, the, the verb. Um, and when you get to, it's also used in, in religious literature, um, similarly to kind of just, in, and I'm thinking here of like uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, it's used to sort of talk about, again, that kind of decision point where a community decides, is it going to follow God's precepts or not, right? And, and you know, what happens to that community is dependent on that, that decision point. When you then fast forward to like the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, really the 18th century, and it starts getting picked up in, in totally different ways to talk about um, not simply in a kind of neutral sense of a kind of decision point, but as some sort of event or set of events that functions as kind of like a rupture um, and, 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 and sort of just, just defines this moment where there's some kind of extraordinary change that happens. Um, in other words, the assumption, right, is that a crisis Negative. will lead to change. No, not always. I mean, I mean, sometimes people talk about, and then this gets into sort of the 19th century, they talk about revolutions as, they talk about the crisis of the 17th century, the sort of revolutions as crisis. And sometimes those crises actually lead to the, the end of monarchy and the beginnings of, of republicanism and so on. Right, right. Um, so it's not necessarily negative, but something that kind of is like a sejour, this kind of breaking point. Point. Um, and I think that's where, um, you know, and Kyle and I maybe disagree over the Justinianic plague, but I think we would probably agree over the coronavirus. This is, I don't see this as a breaking point. I don't see this as, a, I mean, I wish it would be. I wish all of a sudden my government would turn around and decide, yeah, we need to put, you know, let's sort of pull all that funding out of military expenditure and put it over into public health. I would love that. I don't see that happening. I don't see, um, you know, us deciding that the best way forward is to provide everyone with a kind of living wage. I mean, I just don't see those things happening. Um, but, but so, so I don't think, so I think we do have to be careful in the words we use. Um, and I would say that I think with what Kyle was saying that disease events were pretty regular and, and sometimes they looked different and, and therefore probably felt different. Um, I do wonder, and I would love to hear what Kyle has to say about this, whether he thinks that the kind of horrible nature of something like the bubonic plague, how, how disfiguring it is to the body. Um, it turns you black, it makes you ooze pus. Um, I mean, smallpox is just as disfiguring. And of course, that's what we perhaps think happened with the Antonine plague, if I'm not mistaken, although I, I guess that's still up for grabs. Um, you will know better than I, and you can you can correct us. Um, but I do wonder whether there's something about you know for for people living in antiquity, what you know what really sort of qualifies as a quote black swan isn't necessarily something that has all of these reverberations down the line because they're not really they're not focusing on history they're not writing history like that. 
Um, the other sort of piece to throw into this too is we today live in a society built on a kind of ideological structure of progress. We think we're getting better, smarter, richer, healthier, whatever, maybe not healthier, but certainly bigger maybe. <laughs> um, and nobody in late antiquity thought they were living in a like universe governed by progress. Um, if anything, they all thought they were living, you know, in this in this period of senescence or decline. Even I'm thinking someone like Zosimus, who sure thought he was living in in the age of decline. And this was, you know, even before the Justinianic play. So I also wonder, you know, could you even have something like a black swan event if you don't see the world that you live in as one that's always somehow getting better? Or under control by experts. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're we're almost out of time, but I wanted to uh, pick up on on what you just said and ask a last question, which is, um, you know, whether you have any other thoughts as ancient historians who have studied this kind of question in in pre modern societies, whether you have any any other thoughts for all of our listeners who are by necessity. Like, I know for a fact that almost all my audience is probably sitting at home <laughs> listening to podcasts. So um, do you have anything else to tell them about the situation that we're in now, uh, just based on what you know about this, these kinds of phenomena in pre-modern times? I mean, just imagine that in these pre-modern plagues, they didn't have Netflix. Um, and the Tiger King. <laughs> the Tiger King. Uh, how did they survive? Um, no, it's, um, I think, uh, you know, history is, is, uh, um, is such an amazing discipline because it's both humanistic, but it's also social scientific. And um, so it gives us a chance to try and understand the, the structures of these sorts of events and understand them in a deeper perspective. Um, but then it also is, is sort of a record of, of our species um, past understandings of them. Um, and I think it can be a rich resource for, for both trying to um, uh, understand why these sorts of things happen, but then also um, explore how humans have, have reacted to them for a very long time. Um, we're we're um, startled uh, because precisely because we've had so much success in buffering against these kinds of events. And um, in some ways this was predictable and in some ways it was unpredictable. Um, yeah. And it was you can never precisely forecast when these kinds of events are going to happen because of their their nature it depends on um you know the random mutations and adaptations of um microorganisms um that that we can't model uh but at the same time this was this was foreseeable and a lot of smart people um in infectious diseases and public health um knew that we were vulnerable to this so um, hopefully this is this is an opportunity to um, think about expertise and maybe who we should be listening to and um, take seriously the threats because um, this this one does hit a, a kind of a, a chink in the armor so to speak of global public health the the um, microbiology of the pathogen um, um, that creates the, the sort of manner in which it spreads, it's highly contagious, it's asymptomatic for a long time and then spreads asymptomatically. So it, it sort of hit this sweet spot um, where we were vulnerable, um, but it'll happen again. We don't know if it'll be two years from now or 20 years from now, but um, 
hopefully this is a chance to um, learn that we remain vulnerable to these kinds of um, natural challenges and um, are a little bit wiser about how to prepare for the next one. Um, well, just to sort of underscore Kyle's uh, comment that we all need to sort of remember to respect expertise and to listen to people who have spent their entire lives studying these things. Um, I'm not quite so optimistic, however. <laughs> I mean, what I take from reading Procopius in particular, and maybe I shouldn't like design my worldview from reading Procopius. Um, which I, well, Anthony's the world expert. Anthony so would, right? So Anthony will appreciate <laughs> this. Anthony does, right? So, um, but it seems to me what Procopius ultimately says is that, well, first of all, it's, this is all about chance and you know, it, it's not a system we control. But the other thing that I kick out of that that one section in in wars on the plague is that people don't learn. <laughs> like people people might pretend to kind of up their game for a little while and get their acts together and cooperate and be good citizens. But the second it all kind of starts to go back to normal, everyone's like, eh, yeah, forget it too much work. And that's my worry. I mean, if I'm going to learn anything, it's that we don't learn. Um, and so maybe what, if we truly want to break new ground, if this truly is going to be a crisis, maybe in a positive humanistic sense, maybe it will be to step back and realize that we can't just, you know, let our, let our guard down and forget just because in six months time, you know, our 401ks have recovered. Um, and that's, that's my concern is, is that we have a really um, short memory. Um, I'm not even sure people in the sixth century had a super long memory. And I think that was Procopius's whole point. So I don't know. And maybe as historians, we need to play a bigger role in the public and making sure people can see these patterns and, push us as a community to, to be more, I don't know, self-reflexive on, on the decisions we tend to do as a, as a species, um, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I obviously have no idea how this is gonna play out, what long-term impacts it's gonna have. It has put a sort of normative emphasis on listening to experts again, um, but you've talked about that. Uh, and in, in a very interesting way, too, it precisely uh, due to what Kyle mentioned, that the lag time between infection and, and showing symptoms, if you do show them, I think it, it, it's forcing people to think on a slightly larger scale in terms of cause and effect, right? J just even on the scale of a month. And I don't think that people normally do this, but that what I'm doing what we're what I'm doing today and what we're experiencing collectively today is because of something that happened three to four weeks ago. And that we're in this we're in this pattern where we can we can now predict what's going to happen in the next three or four weeks based on what we're doing now, or at least we hope so. And I think that's a slightly larger scale than than most people think about most of the time. And and it'd be great if we could expand that. To, to years and decades, because I think that's what the climate change problem is going to have to require. That we're in it, we're already in it. We just have to think on the relevant time scale. And I just, I just find all of those effects interesting. I don't know what, what will come of them. Anyway, thank you both. Uh, this has been a very interesting discussion um, and I'll try to get it posted by next week. 
Thank you. And yeah, I'll, I'll think of some more topics that, um, that are relevant to our moment. So thank Great. you for Thanks, joining Anthony. me. Really yeah. appreciate it. Good to see you, Tina. Yeah, good to see you, Kyle. I hope Bye. everything continues well. Stay healthy. Bye. Bye, Bye guys.